Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Surprised by Joy, The Shape of My Early Life by C.S. Lewis Chapter 8, Release Part 2 Now, when I had gone to Wyvern and my brother to a tutor to prepare for Sandhurst, there came a change. My brother had liked Wyvern as much as I loathed it. There were many reasons for this. His more adaptable temper. His face, which bore no smack-inviting signature as mine. But most of all, the fact that he had gone there straight from Oldies, and I from a preparatory school where I had been happy. No school in England but would have appeared a heaven on earth after Oldies. Thus, in one of his first letters from Wyvern, my brother communicated the startling fact that you could really eat as much, or as little, as you wanted at table. To a boy fresh from the school at Belzen, this alone would have outweighed almost everything else. But by the time I went to Wyvern, I had learned to take decent feeding for granted. And now, a terrible thing happened. My reaction to Wyvern was perhaps the first great disappointment my brother had ever experienced. Loving the place as he did, he had looked forward to the days when this too could be shared between us. An idem sentire about Wyvern succeeding an idem sentire about Boxen. Instead, he heard, from me, blasphemies against all his gods. From Wyvern, that his young brother looked like becoming a call punt. The immemorial league between us was strained, all but broken. All this was cruelly complicated by the fact that relations between my father and my brother were never before or since so bad as at this time. And Wyvern was behind that, too. My brother's reports had grown worse and worse, and the tutor to whom he had now been sent confirmed them to the extent of saying that he seemed to have learned almost nothing at school. Nor was that all. Sentences savagely underlined in my father's copy of The Lanchester Tradition reveal his thoughts. They are passages about a certain glazed insolence, an elaborate, heartless flippancy, which the reforming headmaster in that story encountered in the bloods of the school he wished to reform. That was how my father envisaged my brother at this period, flippant, languid, emptied of the intellectual interests which had appeared in his earlier boyhood, immovable, indifferent to all real values, and urgent in his demand for a motor bicycle. It was, of course, to turn us into public school boys that my father had originally sent us to Wyvern. The finished product appalled him. It is a familiar tragic comedy, and you can study it in Lockhart. Scott labored hard to make his son a hussar, but when the actual hussar was presented to him, Scott sometimes forgot the illusion of being an aristocrat and became once more a respectable Edinburgh lawyer with strong views about puppyism. So in our family. Mispronunciation was one of my father's favorite rhetorical weapons. He now always sounded the first syllable of wyvern wrongly. I can still hear him growl, Wyvernian affectation! In proportion as my brother's tone became languid and urbanely weary, so my father's voice became more richly and energetically Irish, and all manner of strange music from his boyhood in Cork in Dublin forced its way up through the more recent Belfastian crust. During these miserable debates, I occupied a most unfortunate position. To have been on my father's side and against my brother, I should have had to unmake myself. It was a state of parties outside my whole philosophy of domestic politics. It was all very disagreeable. Yet, out of this unpleasantness, 
a favorite word of my father's, there sprang what I still reckon, by merely natural standards, the most fortunate thing that ever happened to me. The tutor in Surrey, to whom my brother had been sent, was one of my father's oldest friends. He had been headmaster of Lurgan when my father was a boy there. In a surprisingly short time, he so rebuilt and extended the ruins of my brother's education that he not only passed into Sandhurst, but was placed among those very few candidates at the top of the list who received prize cadetships. I do not think my father ever did justice to my brother's achievement. It came at a time when the gulf between them was too wide, and when they were friends, again, it had become ancient history. But he saw very clearly what it proved about the exceptional powers of his teacher. At the same time, he was almost as sick as I of the very name of Wyvern, and I never ceased, by letter and by word of mouth, to beg that I might be taken away. All these factors urged him to the decision which he now made. Might it not, after all, be best to give me my desire? To have done with school for good, and send me also to Surrey to read for the university with Mr. Kirkpatrick? He did not form this plan without much doubt and hesitation. He did his best to put all the risks before me, the dangers of solitude, the sudden change from the life and bustle of a great school, which change I might not like so much as I anticipated, the possibly deadening effect of living with only an old man and his old wife for company. Should I really be happy with no companions of my own age? I tried to look very grave at these questions, but it was all imposture. My heart laughed. Happy without other boys? Happy without toothache? Without chillblains? Happy without pebbles in my shoes? And so the arrangement was made. If it had had nothing else to recommend it, the mere thought, never, never, Never shall I have to play games again, was enough to transport. If you want to know how I felt, imagine your own feelings on waking one morning to find that income tax or unrequited love had somehow vanished from the world. I should be sorry if I were understood to think, or if I encouraged any reader in thinking, that this invincible dislike of doing things with a bat or a ball were other than a misfortune. Not, indeed, that I allow to games any of the moral and almost mystical virtue which schoolmasters claim for them. They seem to me to lead to ambition, jealousy, and embittered partisan feeling, quite as often as to anything else. Yet not to like them is a misfortune, because it cuts you off from companionship with many excellent people who can be approached in no other way. A misfortune, not a vice, for it is voluntary. I had tried to like games and failed. That impulse had been left out of my makeup. I was to games, as the proverb has it, like an ass to the harp. It is a curious truth, noticed by many writers, that good fortune is nearly always followed by more good fortune, and bad by more bad. About the same time that my father decided to send me to Mr. Kirkpatrick, another great good came to me. Many chapters ago I mentioned a boy who lived near us, and who had tried, quite unsuccessfully, to make friends with my brother and myself. His name was Arthur, and he was my brother's exact contemporary. He and I had been at Campbell together, though we never met. I think it was shortly before the beginning of my last term at Wyvern that I received a message saying that Arthur was in bed, convalescent, and would welcome a visit. I can't remember what led me to accept this invitation, but for some reason I did. I found Arthur sitting up in bed, on the table beside him lay a copy of Myths of the Norsemen. Do you like that? said I. 
Do you like that? said he. Next moment, the book was in our hands. Our heads were bent close together. We were pointing, quoting, talking, soon almost shouting, discovering in a torrent of questions that we liked not only the same thing, but the same parts of it, and in the same way, that both knew the stab of joy, and that, for both, the arrow was shot from the north. Many thousands of people have had the experience of finding the first friend, and it is nonetheless a wonder, as great a wonder, pace the novelists, as first love, or even a greater. I had been so far from thinking such a friend possible that I had never even longed for one, no more than I longed to be King of England. If I had found that Arthur had independently built up an exact replica of the Boxonian world, I should not really have been much more surprised. Nothing, I suspect, is more astonishing in any man's life than the discovery that there do exist people very, very like himself. During my last few weeks at Wyvern, strange stories began to appear in the papers, for this was the summer of 1914. I remember how a friend and I puzzled over a column that bore the headline, Can England keep out of it? Keep out of it, said he. I don't see how she can get into it. Memory paints the last hours of that term in slightly apocalyptic colors, and perhaps memory lies. Or perhaps for me it was apocalyptic enough to know that I was leaving, to see all those hated things for the last time, yet not simply, at that moment, to hate them. There is a rumness, a ghostliness, about even a Windsor chair when it says, You will not see me again. Early in the holidays we declared war. My brother, then on leave from Sandhurst, was recalled. Some weeks later, I went to Mr. Kirkpatrick at Great Bookham in Surrey. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.